Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to speak with you today on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is one of God's seven annual holy days. It pictures a major event in the plan of God, and it's also a commanded assembly. Some of you will be keeping the Day of Atonement for the first time in your life, maybe the first several times in your life. Many of you, though, will have kept the Day of Atonement for decades. And you know, sometimes when we have kept a day for year after year after year, sometimes we can assume, well, there's really not much else I can learn because I know everything about the day. And yet let me ask you a couple of questions to see where you are relative to your understanding of the Day of Atonement. If I ask you what is the meaning of the Day of Atonement, you would probably respond by saying, well, the Day of Atonement pictures a time just after Christ's return and just before the millennium begins when Satan is going to be bound and put out of commission. And it pictures a time when the whole world will become at one with God. And that's a correct biblical answer. But let me ask you another question. If I ask you, what are you doing now to prepare for the Day of Atonement? What are you doing now to prepare for what this day pictures in the future? A time when Satan will be bound and a time when the world becomes at one with God. Are you ready for what this day pictures? Are you prepared for what this day pictures? You might kind of look at me with a quizzical expression and say, well, what do you mean? What can I do now? Because God is going to bind Satan. And when Satan is bound, then the whole world will become at one with God. So what is there really for us to do, except maybe pray that it would come sooner? I would ask another question. If that is all there is to the Day of Atonement, that God is going to bind Satan and the world will become at one with God, why do we have to go through the trials and the tribulations that we're going through today if God is going to do everything for us. I hope as a result of the sermon today that we will all come to a deeper understanding of what we can do now, what we need to be doing to prepare for the Day of Atonement and what it pictures, the binding of Satan and the world becoming at one with God. Let's look quickly again at those first two questions that I ask. The first question requires only a passive answer. Do you know the meaning of the Day of Atonement? Well, yes, it pictures a time when Satan will be bound, and it pictures a time when the world will become at one with God. All we have to do is know the answer. We don't have to do anything else. However, the second question, are you ready for what is coming ahead? Are you preparing for a time when we will become at one with God? What are you actually doing? This requires an active dimension on our part. Things that we need to be doing, things that we need to be preparing for. Notice, if you would, the parable of the ten virgins. If you turn to Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. Notice here Christ is giving a parable and is talking about preparing for what is coming in the future. 
says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be likened unto ten virgins, and they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Christ is coming back to marry the church. The church will become at one with God, with Jesus Christ when he returns. It says, Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps without any oil. Those who were wise took oil in their lamps or in their vessels with their lamps. So we have here pictured five foolish virgins and five wise. The five foolish ones did not take any oil, and oil is symbolic of God's Holy Spirit. How do we get God's Spirit? By repenting, by making a commitment to God, by being baptized then God promises to give us his spirit, again pictured by the oil in the parable. We're also told to stir up and nourish and fan into flame that spirit. There are things we need to be doing with God's spirit so that we can be ready to become at one with God. In verse 7, it says, All those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. You You trim back the wick, you get everything prepared. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. We don't have enough oil. We're not ready yet because our lamps are going up. They weren't praying. They weren't studying. They were probably drifting around, looking at various things, maybe drifting from one church to another, looking for something interesting, some new tidbit to uh, prick their mind. Give us some of your oil. But the wise answered saying, no, we can't give you because there won't be enough for you and for us. But you rather go and sell and buy to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Now notice what happened when they went out to look for some more oil. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, where they became at one with God. Those who were ready were invited to the wedding ceremony. You can check Revelation 19 and verse 7. It says, blessed are those that are invited to the wedding supper. The word in the Greek for blessed means to be envied. To be envied were those who were invited to the wedding supper where they would become at one. They would be joined with God and with Jesus Christ. Afterward, the other virgins came. The door was shut. Then the other virgins came back, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. They weren't watching. They weren't prepared. They weren't ready. They didn't have a supply of God's Spirit. And as a result, they did not get the opportunity to become at one with God at the beginning of the millennium. What are you doing to prepare for what this day of atonement pictures, a time when Satan will be bound, but a time when we will become at one with God and have this special opportunity? The foolish were not ready. They weren't watching. They didn't have God's spirit. They weren't close to God, and they did not have the same opportunity. What I would like to do in the sermon today on the day of atonement is to talk about lessons that we can learn from the Day of Atonement. I want to discuss several important lessons that we need to learn now 
so that we can prepare and be ready to become at one with God when Jesus Christ comes back. I also want to focus on several things that we need to understand about this world so that we can be prepared to reign with Jesus Christ in the world tomorrow, in the coming kingdom of God. So let's look at some of these lessons that we can learn today from the Day of Atonement. And I've entitled the sermon, Lessons from Atonement, or Lessons of the Day of Atonement. Let's turn back, first of all, to Leviticus chapter 23, where we find basic instructions, biblical instructions about the Day of Atonement, what it means and why we observe it. In Leviticus chapter 23, we find some very specific instructions that the Day of Atonement was to be observed on the 10th day of the seventh month, a very specific time. It is called a holy convocation. The word convocation means a commanded assembly. You will be there, is what God is saying. It's a high Sabbath, a high holy day. It pictures one of the seven major steps in the plan of God. We're also reading here in Leviticus 23 that it is uh, to be a statute forever. God commanded this day to be observed as a statute forever throughout all the generations. The reason he commanded it is because it's a very important part, a very important step in the plan of God. It pictures a major step. In Leviticus 23, it also talks about in verse 27, it says, On the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation, a very special time for meeting. Uh, It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, we don't do the offerings now because Christ made his sacrifice as an offering. But it says, you shall afflict your souls. What does that mean? In the Bible, the word afflict has to do with humbling ourselves weakening ourselves, uh, submitting to God. In Psalm 35, verse 13, we read that David afflicted his soul, humbled his soul with fasting, afflicted his soul with fasting. Fasting is part of this process where we humble ourselves, where we don't eat for 24 hours. By humbling ourselves in this manner, we are showing God that we really want to follow his specific instructions. We don't eat, we don't drink for 24 hours because God has commanded us to do that. And we're showing God we're serious about this. We want to follow your instructions. We want to do what you have told us to do. And if we have the right attitude in humbling ourselves, we will be teachable. We will come to services looking to be taught. Normally, before we uh, open or as we open a service, on a holy day or on a regular Sabbath. We ask for God's instruction and inspiration. We ask for God's inspiration on the speaking and on the listening because we want to learn. We want God's spirit to work with our heart and with our mind so that we can become more like God, develop more of his perspective, to see things as God sees things. So God commands us to afflict our souls, to humble ourselves before him. You know, if you keep your finger here in Leviticus 23 and just 
Turn over to Acts 27 and verse 9. It's very interesting because Paul refers to the fast being past uh, at a particular point in time. He uses the fast in the fall as a reference point. Acts 27 and verse 9. It says, Now when much time had been spent, sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Different translations translate this in various ways. One translation says, when the fall fast was passed. Another translation says, when the fall festival was passed. The implication from the scripture is the early New Testament church was observing the Day of Atonement because Paul refers to it that way. If they weren't observing it, Paul would have had no need to even refer to it. But fasting is part of the Day of Atonement. We humble ourselves before God. We want to be teachable. But this is part of the instruction. You can read through Leviticus 23, and there's not a lot of instruction here in terms of what the day means. All we are told is that we're to observe it on a specific day, the 10th day of the 7th month. It's to be a holy convocation. We're to afflict our souls. But it doesn't tell us what the meaning of the day is. We get some implication of the meaning from the Jewish name for the feast, Yom Kippur. It comes from the word uh, Kippur, K-I-P-P-U-R, which means to cancel a debt, to uh, make a payment for a penalty, and it also means to become reconciled to God. So we do get an indication of what the day is all about from the Hebrew name for the day, Yom Kippur. It means a day for canceling a debt, a day for paying a penalty, a day of reconciliation. If we turn back to Leviticus chapter 16, here we find more of the meaning of the day. This is a very interesting chapter, especially when you compare what uh, modern uh, scholars, theologians, uh, try to understand from this chapter. And when you read their books, they don't really understand what the day fully means. Leviticus 16, we find a ritual or a ceremony described of two goats that were used in two different ways. The first goat is to be offered as a sin offering for the sins of the people to make an atonement for the sins of the people. This goat pictures the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he would come in the future to make. So even in the Old Testament world, they were keeping a ceremony that looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, his giving of his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that is what this first goat pictures. And most theologians understand this part of the ceremony that it's an atoning sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that atones for the sins of the people. It reconciles the people to God. Notice in a couple of scriptures in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 5, where this the description is given of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what it pictured. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. It says, for if when we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what Paul is telling the church in Rome was that they have been reconciled to God through the death of his son, through the death of Jesus Christ. His atoning sacrifice paid the penalties for their sins. And as a result, they could be reconciled to God. Now, the Greek word here uh, is katalasso. Uh, another word similar to it, katalage, uh, means to bring into agreement, where two parties come into agreement. They become of one mind. It means to become compatible, where we're thinking the same and doing the same and focusing in the same direction. It also means to come together, to be at one. So here we have the tie-in between Christ reconciling human beings to God and the Day of Atonement, where the sacrifice in the Old Testament looked forward to a time when Christ would come and give his life as an atoning sacrifice. Also in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. It says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. It's Christ's atoning sacrifice that reconciles us to God, where we can become at one with God, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself is because Jesus Christ came and gave his life as a sacrifice for all mankind that the world will eventually be able to become at one with God. So the Day of Atonement is about reconciliation, being reconciled to God, becoming at one with God. This is what it pictures, and this is what the first goat pictures in this Old Testament ceremony where it, was, it became a sacrifice. It was a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But there was a second goat described in Revelation, excuse me, in Leviticus chapter 16. A second goat is described in Leviticus 16, and it's called a scapegoat. This is a term that gets people a little bit off course. Uh, the sins of the people were put over this goat, and then it was banished. It was banished into the wilderness. This term scapegoat comes from a Hebrew word, azazel. Uh, and that word comes from another Hebrew word, azel, which means to be removed or to be separated. It was a goat that was separated from the rest of the people and sent out into the wilderness after the sins of the people were put on its head. The term azazel is a proper name. In Jewish tradition, uh, the Jews viewed this azazel as the prince of the fallen angels. Satan the devil is what this goat is pictured as. Satan the devil. Now that's how the Jews have viewed it. That's how the Bible views it. But many theologians today get mixed up. They look at these two verses or these two goats and they, they try and speculate as to what they mean. Clark's commentary suggests that the two goats picture the two natures of Jesus Christ, I guess human and divine. You can figure out which one is supposed to be which. Unger's Bible Dictionary says the second goat is an aspect of Christ's sacrifice. 
So Unger's Bible Dictionary doesn't really understand the meaning of the day or the word. Halley's Bible Handbook says the second goat pictures an aspect of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. What else could it be? So even Halley's Handbook doesn't understand. This, this second goat is puzzling to many theologians today. However, if we turn to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, we find the Bible defines and explains what the second goat means and what it pictures. The second goat in Leviticus 16 was to be banished to the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people. In other words, the responsibility for the the sins were actually put on the head of the goat that caused the problem or the individual. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, we find a description that fits hand in glove with Leviticus 16 and the second goat. John says here, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he, this angel, laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And a seal was put on him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1 explains what this second goat is all about. It pictures a time when Satan is going to be bound He's going to be prevented from influencing anyone over the face of the earth. And he's going to be bound for a thousand years, just like this goat in the Old Testament was banished to the wilderness by a fit person. That fit person is described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, as an angel that comes down from heaven. This is part of God's plan to put Satan out of commission for a thousand years as the saints in Jesus Christ then begin during the millennium to work with human beings, to teach them God's way of life, and Satan will not be allowed to influence them anymore. This is part of what the Day of Atonement is all about, binding Satan, putting him out of commission so that the world will be able to become at one with God. But you know, there's more to the story. Does God do all this for us? Do we have nothing to do? Do we just sit around passively and watch Satan being bound and then just wait for the world to become at one with God? Or are there things that we need to be doing now to prepare to become at one with God? I think we'll see as we go through the sermon, there are things we need to be doing. We can't just be sitting around waiting for all these things to happen. What I would like to do now is to focus on two important lessons that we need to learn so that we can prepare to be at one with God. These are things we need to be doing now, and these are lessons that we need to learn very deeply as we go through this Day of Atonement. Lesson number one is that we need to recognize, resist, and overcome Satan's influence now. We need to recognize, resist, and overcome Satan's influence now. And let's go through some scriptures that illustrate this important aspect. Because these are some, this is something we need to do so that we can be ready to be at one with God. If we don't do these things, we're not going to be ready. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. We learn a very important lesson. Now, for those of you that have kept the Day of Atonement for decades, you know this intellectually. But, you know, we need to remember so that we're not carried away as we live our lives on a daily basis. In verse 3 of Revelation, in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing. There are many people today that do not understand the plan of God. There are many people today that don't keep the Day of Atonement. They've been told this is all Old Testament. It doesn't apply to us today. And as a result, they don't understand what this day means. They don't understand about the plan of God. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded. The God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. What we're being told here is this is Satan's world that we live in. You know, when I grew up, there was a song that was popular. This is my father's world. Well, this is not God's world. God did create the world, but he also created the devil for reasons that would challenge people, that we'd have to grow and overcome. We are living in Satan's world. It's a world of deception. It's a world of lies. It's a world in which people are being misled by rational-sounding ideas. People are being told, these are all Old Testament days. We don't have to do these things anymore. They're all Old Covenant. Well, you don't make statutes forever. You don't make statutes forever that you're going to do away with. Now, these statutes were forever so that we would keep us mindful of the plan of God. We need to understand we are living in Satan's world. We need to educate our children. The people aren't bad, but we are living in a world where bad things are done. We're living in a world they need to understand so that they can fight against it and overcome it. We need to understand these things. Let me just mention a couple of scriptures in Revelation 12:9. We are told that Satan has deceived the whole world. You know, all religions don't carry everybody to the same place. They deceive people. They point people in different directions. They're not worshiping the same God. But we're told very plainly in Revelation 12:9 is Satan has deceived the whole world. There are six billion people in the world today. And most of those people, nearly all of those people, have been deceived in one way or another by various types of religions and philosophies. This is the world that we've been called out of. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Satan is, the, is a liar, we're told. He spreads lies, telling people that the holy days have been done away with telling people that they go to heaven when they die, telling people it's all right to believe whatever you believe. These are lies. They mislead people. They point people in a wrong direction. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter mentions there how people have, have twisted the Scriptures 
people influenced by Satan will twist the scriptures and try and make them say things that they don't say, telling people that uh, various uh, instructions in the Bible were just for the New Testament church at that time of Paul or Peter, and they don't apply to us today, is to twist the scriptures and to make them say things that are not said in the scriptures. You know, believe it or not, Satan even has ministers. Second Corinthians chapter 11. And we need to understand this, brethren. We're living in Satan's world just because a person claims to be a minister, claims to believe in Jesus Christ, does not mean they're telling the truth. These are sobering scriptures. Revelation chapter 11 Paul mentions some will come, in verse 4, preaching another Jesus, a Jesus that has long hair, a Jesus that goes to heaven, a Jesus that says you don't need to keep the commandments because I've kept them for you. These are lies. And people that preach these things are preaching wrong things. But Paul warns some will come preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached. You know, as we pointed out in Acts 27, verse 9, Paul was keeping, and the early church was keeping the Day of Atonement. Christians today, by and large, don't. They keep Christmas. They keep Easter. So some will come preaching another Jesus. They will have a different spirit, a spirit that wants to vote, a spirit that wants to compete, a spirit that wants to compromise, a spirit that says, well, that's okay, that's all right. You can do whatever you feel is right in your heart. It's a different spirit that leads many churches today. And he also talks about preaching a different gospel. Jesus Christ came preaching the gospel of a coming kingdom of God, where the saints are going to reign on this earth for a thousand years with Jesus Christ. He did not come saying, give me your heart. Come to heaven with me. Sit on clouds, play a harp. That was a totally different gospel that came along centuries later after Jesus Christ came and established the church. Paul warned that many would come preaching another Jesus, a different gospel, being led by a different spirit. In verse 13 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For such are false apostles, and some people even claim to be apostles today, and you've, they've got to be tried. They've got to be tested. Compare what they say with what the Bible actually says. Deceitful workers. He says they will transfer themselves into the apostles of Christ. He's talking about false apostles who will let on like they're being led by Jesus Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul says there will be ministers that are Satan's ministers. Now, they don't walk around with a pin on their button, with a pin on their lapel saying, I am one of Satan's ministers. No, they will let on like they are a minister of Jesus Christ. You know, I'm praying for you, brethren. You know, I don't want you to be deceived, but just follow me. We are living in Satan's world. Satan has ministers that will deceive and mislead and twist the scriptures 
and tell you what you believe and your little heart is fine and God will accept whatever you want to believe as long as your heart's right. These are lies. They mislead people. If we are going to become part of God's family, if we're going to become at one with God, we have got to recognize how Satan operates. We need to realize we're part of his world and we need to come out of that world. Notice in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. We need to understand we're living in Satan's world. This is not God's way. This is not God's way of doing things. You know, the entertainment of this world is not godly entertainment, by and large. The way people dress today is not the way God would have us dress. The way people talk and what they talk about today, by and large, is not what God would have us talk about. You know, not people, their problems and murmur, murmur, murmur about this and that, and not judging the church and all those things, but focusing on big principles, focusing on how to apply the laws of God, how to solve the problems that are hurting people in this world, how to reach mankind with a message of hope. We need to understand we're living in Satan's world. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul says, There come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. You know, separate yourselves from, God, from Satan's world and his way of doing things. Develop higher standards in what you view and watch and read for entertainment, what you do for entertainment. Think on big things. Focus on reaching mankind with a message. Be part of a church that's trying to do that. Not a social club and not one that just tries to appease and compromise and do everything to make, every, make it easy for people to join. We've got a job to do of reaching this world with a message. Focusing on Bible prophecy that warns the world about the significance of what's happening in this world. You know, some people today don't want to talk about prophecy. Oh, it's scary. We don't want to talk about the bad news. We want to talk about the good news. God loves everybody. God commissioned Jeremiah. God commissioned Isaiah. God commissioned Hosea and the other prophets to warn the peoples of Israel and Judah what was coming and why those punishments were coming. God has blessed his people according to the promises in his word. He's going to take those blessings away because we've turned our back on God. We've gotten involved with Satan's world. We don't see the difference. These are messages that we have to deliver. And as a part of the church, part of the team that God is using and preparing now, we have the privilege and the opportunity of working with Jesus Christ now to prepare the way for his return. We have got to come out of this world if we ever hope to become at one with God, we can't be dragging this world's perspectives and this world's ideas and the world's way of doing things into the kingdom of God. We have got to have made a clean break and leave these things behind. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about, coming out of this world, becoming at one with God, leaving behind the modes of thinking and the ways of acting, the ways of dressing that show too much of ourselves off that show ourselves off. You know, we've got to leave those things behind. We've got to come out of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, another aspect of recognizing and resisting and overcoming Satan's influence. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. Paul admonishes the church in Corinth. They were having some difficulties. He said, you know, you need to be forgiving of people, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant, or we should not be ignorant of his devices, his methods. Satan uses all kinds of uh, divisive messages uh, to deceive us, to deceive people. You know, we have been, we, we have grown up in a world that basically says, well, you know, if you think it's okay, do it. You know, if it doesn't bother your conscience, it must be all right. But, you know, our consciences are educated. Our consciences are formed by the values that we are taught as we grow up. If you grew up in, if you grew up in a family where there, was a, where there was a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, a lot of carousing, you're not going to think it's very bad to do those things. Well, I, I saw my parents do it. I saw my friends do it. What, what's so big a deal about it? Why is it so bad? See, our conscience is educated, it's formed, it's molded, it's fashioned by the experiences that we have growing up. We need to understand how Satan operates. You know, if we think something, well, it's, it's not too bad, we need to ask, what does God think about it? What does the Bible tell us about these things? The Bible warns us that there, there is a way that seems right to a person. Well, it, it seems okay to me. I don't see anything wrong with this. But the proverb says there's a way that seems right to a person, but the outcome of that way is going to be death. We didn't see anything wrong with it, but we need to understand what God has to say about these things. This whole concept of rationalizing away, reasoning away, reasoning away the scriptures. Well, this idea that a man's to be the head of the house and a woman's to be responsive to his leadership, well, that's, <laughs> that was for Paul's time. That doesn't apply today. You know, we're, we're big people today. We're free to do whatever we want today. You know, as long as it doesn't bother my conscience, I can do it. You know, these are things, brethren, we need to leave behind. The idea that what is in the New Testament was dated and only for Paul's time is a totally wrong concept. You know, all scripture is inspired by God. He didn't inspire just a little bit and then we throw that away and then we can do this and pick and choose what we want. That's cafeteria religion, picking and choosing what we want to follow out of the scriptures. We have got to recognize and resist and overcome these influences from Satan. Let's look at another principle here in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Satan is described as a roaring lion. It says, be sober, be vigilant, you know, stay alert, stay awake. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. This is how Satan operates. He's looking for people that have got a little problem that have some concern, and he will focus on you and begin to zero in on you and work on you to blow you out of the path, to keep you away from becoming at one with God. It's interesting in Luke 22, verse 31, you can check that on your own. 
Christ told Peter, he says, Satan wanted you. Satan has asked for you. He wanted to get at you. That was what Christ told Peter. And Peter stumbled a number of times. Peter stumbled a number of times. In Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23, Christ was saying, look, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to be put to death. And Peter jumped on him. He said, no way. That's not going to happen to you. I'm not going to let it happen. What was Christ's response to Peter? He said, get me, get you behind me, Satan. He said, Peter, you're being influenced by a source that you don't realize. Peter stumbled. And yet Peter was a leader among the apostles. We are all going to be tempted. Jesus Christ was tempted by Satan. Satan tried several different ways to get at Christ. Oh, you're hungry. Just, just command those stones to be turned into food. But Christ had a response. We've got to live by every word of God. He was prepared. He was ready. He was able to deal with Satan. Satan went after Christ. He went after Peter. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul says, All those in Asia, all those in Asia that I preach to, that were baptized, that came into the church, he said, they're all gone. They didn't recognize Satan's influence. They succumbed. He got to them. Brethren, we are going to be tempted too. Satan is a roaring lion. You have been called to become first fruits, part of the family of God, to be at the, uh, the wedding supper, to go in and become at one with God. You are having an opportunity. Satan has lost his opportunity, and he wants to keep you from gaining the opportunity that you've been given to become at one with God. You need to be alert to that. We need to recognize these things. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, Paul tells the Ephesians, he says, you need to put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand against the wiles, the methods, the deceptive uh, methods that Satan uses. He said you need to know the truth. You need to prove what the truth is. You need to know it. You need to obey the commandments of God. Don't fudge with them. Don't play with them. Don't reason around those things. You need to obey the commandments of God. You need to believe the gospel. You need to know what the true gospel is and believe that gospel where you're preparing for the coming kingdom of God. You're looking forward to that. That becomes the guiding star in your life, drawing closer to God, preparing for, preparing for his coming kingdom. You need to exercise faith and trust in God. You may be a young person or a single person and you want to get married. Do you trust God for help in that manner and in that area? Or do you just go out and try and grab somebody? Well, I like them. They're in the church. I guess maybe we should get married. No, we need to be trusting God, asking God for guidance in these things. Make ourselves the best possible mate for someone. You know, there's an appropriate time, an appropriate place for these things. But trust God. Exercise faith. We need to be praying always in a prayerful attitude, looking to God for guidance and direction. We need to be watching world events so that we're not taken by surprise when these major things begin to happen. You know, the first major lesson that I wanted to, to mention here this, in, on this Day of Atonement 
is that we need to recognize, resist, and overcome Satan's influence because we're living in his world now. And if we overcome these things, if we're able to recognize and resist Satan's influences, we will be able to be at one with God in the coming future, which is what this day pictures. Second major lesson is that we need to develop the mind and perspective of God. We're never going to be able to become at one with God if we don't have his perspective and if we don't develop his mind, how he sees things and be on the same wavelength. In John chapter 10, verse 30, in John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus made an interesting statement. And this is something we need to focus on. In verse 30, he said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and my Father are one. We see things from the same perspective. We're on the same page. We are of the same mind. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus said to his disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. You know, we talk the same way. We dress the same way. We're focused in the same direction. You've seen me operate. You'll understand how God operates because we are one. We are on the same page. In John 17, verse 11, this was the prayer that Christ offered the night before he was crucified. It was a teaching prayer. He was praying to his father, but he was explaining certain concepts to his disciples in the prayer. Verse 11, he says, now I am no longer in the world. We should not be in the world either in the sense of thinking and acting like the world does. But these are in the world, talking about his disciples. Uh, And he says, I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. This is our purpose. This is our goal, to become at one with God. And Christ is praying to the Father that his disciples... And we are disciples if we follow his teachings, that we can become at one with God. We become at one with God as we develop the mind and the perspective of God. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. And he's giving them basic guidelines. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have to develop the mind of Jesus Christ. And then Paul describes a little bit about that mind, that perspective. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. We've talked about in the past super deacons, where they get a few stripes on their shoulders and they want respect. They want people to snap too. Ministers have functioned that way. Employers have functioned that way sometimes. There's something about us when we're influenced by Satan. We want to be on top. We want to be in charge. We want to give people orders. That's not how we're to function. 
were to function as servant leaders. Leaders see things. They see problems down the road. They look for solutions, and they look for ways to serve God and to serve their fellow human beings. It's a humble approach. Being made, he, but he made himself of no reputation. He took the, the stripes off his shoulders, so to speak. Taking the form of a servant coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He followed God's plan and purpose for his life. He came to realize as he grew up that he was going to give his life as a sacrifice. The scriptures all pointed to that. And he even had to wrestle with himself before he died. You know, he asked God in his prayers, God, is there any other way? You know, can't we do it some other way? But then he said, your will, not mine, is what we're going to do. You know, Jesus Christ humbled himself. He had the mind of God. And as a result of having that mind of God, verse 9, says, therefore God also has highly exalted him to become king of kings and lord of lords and to rule over the world tomorrow and has given him a name which is above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth. We have to develop the mind of God, the mind of Jesus Christ, to be humble, to be teachable, to be faithful. Notice in 1 Corinthians what Paul advised the church at Corinth to do. Now, they were having some problems. They were divided, following different people. It's interesting to note what Paul's instructions to the church had to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. That you all speak the same thing. That there be no divisions, no factions, no schisms, no dissensions among you. But that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Brethren, people that have the mind of Jesus Christ the mind of God, are not going to be divided up into all kinds of little squabbling, uh, bickering groups. They're going to have the same perspective on government. They're going to have the same perspective on preaching the gospel, the same perspective on doctrine, the same perspective on the world. They're going to be focused in the same direction. Paul was admonishing a church that was divided that they be of the same mind and of the same judgment. In verse 13, it says, is Christ divided? The implication is no. Christ is not divided. True Christians will not divide it, will not be divided. The church of God, people that are composed, uh, that have the same perspective of God, will not be divided. Atonement is about coming together. Atonement about is, is, is about being in agreement. Atonement is about being reconciled to God. And if we're reconciled to God, we will be reconciled to each other if we have the mind of God. Paul mentions in Second Corinthians or First Corinthians chapter two, First Corinthians chapter two, 
verse 16, it says, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If we have repented and been baptized, made a commitment to God, if we're obeying the commandments of God, if we are close to God, if we're reading the scriptures and allowing the thoughts of God to run through our mind, we will have the mind of God. And as we develop that mind of God, we are going to be preparing to become at one with God. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul mentions here, I have been crucified with Christ. I have put to death my old self, my old perspective, my old way of thinking. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I don't live my life doing what I think I should do, is what Paul is saying. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. Before I do something, Paul is saying, I ask the question, what would Jesus Christ do? How would he approach this problem? How would he approach this challenge? How would he respond in this situation? Paul was letting and urging the Christians to let Jesus Christ live his life over within them. And as Christ lives his life over within us, we will develop the mind and the perspective of God, and we will be preparing to become at one with God. These are things we need to do and be focused on as we go through this Day of Atonement. One other very interesting scripture, Revelation 13, excuse me, Romans 13, verse 14. Romans 13, verse 14. You might want to read this in several different translations. In fact, let's start uh, a little bit earlier here in verse 11. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this. See, there are things that we need to do. We're just, we just can't sit around and watch uh, and be a spectator when, when God binds Satan and when the world becomes at one with God. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be an automatic thing. And do this now, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of your sleep. You know, we all need to wake up and realize we're living at the end of an age. And some people will say, well, you know, things have been going on forever. People have been wrong before. We need to see through those things, brethren. It's high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Come out of this world. Don't be entangled by the ways of this world. Don't dress like the world does. Don't talk like the world does. Don't get involved with worldly entertainments and worldly ways of thinking. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly. Let us walk properly. Let's live soberly. Let's live according to the scriptures. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or drunkenness, not in licentiousness or lewdness. And many of the world's Ways of dressing and talking and acting are licentious and lewd, not in strife or envy. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
You know, clothe yourself in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Develop his mindset. Develop his perspective. Develop his approach. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. As one translation mentioned here, says stop. As this, put a stop to the gratify, Put a stop to gratifying the pulls of the flesh. Put an end to these desires that are not right. To smoke, to drink, to lust, to covet, to do these things. Put an end to it. You know, get your life together. These are things we've got to do if we hope to be at one with God. Jesus Christ didn't do certain things. You know, Paul makes a statement. He said, you know, I can do all things, but all things are not appropriate. All things are not advisable. It's stupid to do certain things. If we hope to become at one with God, if we hope to reign with Jesus Christ, we've got to put off these things. We've got to walk properly. We've got to put on Jesus Christ. We've got to develop the mind and the perspective of Jesus Christ. How do we do these things? A couple of comments in conclusion. How did Jesus Christ develop the mind of God? We say, well, he was, he was already God. He already had that mind. No, he had to grow in that direction. He had to learn to pray. And he would have learned from the scriptures. You can go back to Psalms 55, verse 17, and read that David, who was a man after God's own heart, prayed three times a day. Morning, noon, and the evening. Now, he may have prayed more than that. But the implication, he prayed at least that much. He took time to pray to God. He took time to talk with God. You know, if, if, you, if you never talk to someone, you never get to know them, and they never get to know you. And Christ's response to some people when he returns will be, you know, I never knew you. We never talked. We never got acquainted. You were too busy. You were always doing something else. Yeah, I know I was on the shelf, but you never took me off the shelf. We never got acquainted with each other. We were never at one with each other. Christ had to learn to pray. He had to be taught to pray by his parents. And they probably used David as an example. Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10 said, Daniel prayed three times a day. Even when he knew if he would get caught, that would be his life. He still continued to pray. He talked with God. Jesus Christ prayed to his Father. You know, before he chose his disciples, he prayed all night long. He was making a big decision. He was laying the foundation for the New Testament church. He prayed all night long, discussed with the Father the pros and cons of making this choice, the pros and cons of making that choice. He talked with God. He asked for God's guidance. You know, when you have big decisions to make, pray to God. God, open the doors where I need to be. Close them where I don't need to be. Make it obvious to me. I don't want to make a mistake. I want to do things right. I want to be pleasing in your sight. I want to learn to think as you do. God, grant me more of your perspective. So we've got to be praying. We've got to be studying the Word of God so that we understand the Word of God. In 2 Timothy 2.15, let's just turn there quickly. 
These are things that we can do to grow to become more like God, to develop more of his perspective, more of his mind, so that we can become at one with God. Second Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Start in verse 14. Remind them of these things, Paul says to Timothy, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. Don't get into arguments where there's no real solid answer. Don't waste your time on those things because these things only lead to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This word be diligent can also be translated study. Study so you can present yourselves to God so that you can understand the word of God. You know, people can be deceived easily today who do not understand the scriptures. This Da Vinci Code book that has come out in the movie that's been made from it makes some wild statements about the Bible. One character is, is given the words to say, well, you know, the Bible is only written by men. It's not inspired. It's just like any other book, which is a lie. Many other lies are told about the scriptures, but you've got to understand the scriptures so you don't be misled by some of these things that are floating around today and have floated around for centuries. We need to study the word of God. In Luke chapter 2, when Christ was taken up to Jerusalem on the Passover by his parents, he wound up sitting down with the scribes and Pharisees and asking them questions they couldn't even understand or couldn't even answer. He knew the scriptures. Christ prayed, talked with his father. He read the scriptures. He learned to live by the scriptures. When he was tempted by Christ, he said, that's not, when he was tempted by Satan, he said, that's not according to the scripture. I can't do that. If we're praying to God and we're studying the word of God, the thoughts of God are going to go through our hearts and through our minds. We will be developing the mind and the perspective of God as we do these things. And as we do these things, brethren, praying, studying, living by every word of God, becoming knowledgeable of the scriptures, learning to exercise the fruits of God's spirit, we are going to be preparing to become at one with God. This day of atonement pictures a major step in the plan of God. Christ will return, pictured by the day of trumpets, the feast of trumpets, who will return to this earth. On the Day of Atonement, he's going to bind Satan. He's going to put him out of commission. And the world then will be able to become at one with God. But becoming at one with God involves recognizing and overcoming the influences of Satan. We're going to be dealing with people in the early part of the millennium who have developed thought patterns, ways of thinking, ways of acting that they think is fine. And even without Satan's influence, they're going to have to be shown this is wrong and this is right. This is the way to go. This is not the way to go. You need to repent of those thoughts. You need to change those perspectives and move in this direction. We're going to have to help them develop the mind of God. And as they develop the mind of God, learn to live God's way, then they will become at one with God. Becoming at one with God is not a passive spectator sport. It is a very active, very dynamic experience. 
And as we learn how to become at one with God, we're going to be able to show others how to become at one with God. And brethren, that is what the Day of Atonement is all about. A time when Satan is going to be bound, a time when the world will become at one with God as they are shown how to become at one with God. Brethren, I hope that we have learned today that the Day of Atonement is not a passive spectator experience. It's a very active, dynamic part of God's plan. And we have an active, dynamic role to play as we prepare to become at one with God.